Open your Bibles to the book of Esther. Esther 8. Esther chapter 8. As we continue our amazing study or our study of this amazing revelation and story of God, for 70 days, the Jews have been terrified by the bad news. The bad news was announced in chapter 3 and 70 days transpired. It would have been as if it had taken place on the 13th of January, and now it is the 23rd of March, the first month to the third month. Chapter 8 is the announcement of a new revelation. There's new teaching or new revelation, new insight, new laws being given from the king. What do those new laws say? It says that the Jews may defend themselves. There's still going to be an attack on the 13th day of the 12th month. For our calendar, we could think of that as December. 13 December, there will be an attack. But now the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. It's coming in nine months. Eight days and 20 months, the attack will come. But the defense will come on the same day. But right now, it is only words from the king. That is, the enemy still hates them. The enemy is still alive. The enemy still has a chance to kill them. But the only thing that has changed is this. The king has given a law. You may defend yourself. I'd like us to discuss tonight the results of the promise of deliverance. And I would like to make a comment about God's providence. Some of you were with us today in Makassa, where I preached from Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. And I showed you there four results of faith. This passage that I did not plan to preach on gives us four results of believing the promise. And you listen tonight as we go through these verses and see the amazing parallel with Romans 5. Interesting that those two passages should come up on the same day. Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 and Esther 8 verses 15 through 17. Let's read the passage. Begin in verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold, with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast, And a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews. The fear of the Jews fell on them. There are four distinct people in these verses. Look down to the verses and tell me as we walk through them. Because they will supply us with our outline for tonight. 
each of these people is the subject of the verb in the clause. Who is the first person you meet in verse 15? Mordecai. The second is the city of Shushan or Shushan. Who is the third person or the third group of people? The Jews. They're rejoicing and happy. Who is the fourth group of people? Many of the peoples of the lands. They are converted. Tonight, I would like to tell you this, that even the promise of deliverance before the actual deliverance comes brings great blessings. That's the thesis. That's the theme. If you just have the promise, you don't even need the actual deliverance to receive great blessings. There are amazing benefits delivered just with the promise. If you will believe it. Or in other words, in the terms of this afternoon's sermon, faith in God's promises brings four blessings. Does that sound like Romans 5 that we studied today? Peace, access, hope, and trials. Let's see the blessings that this passage deals with. Number one, look in verse 15. Mordecai is exalted. He had been in a humble position for most of the book, but now he is permanently blessed. For most of the book, he was humbled, but now he is exalted. He has been given the entire estate of Haman. Haman was killed in the last verse of chapter 7, and now in chapter 8, Mordecai is given that estate. It's the replacement principle. He now has the political and social power that Haman had. He is now a symbol for the entire nation and empire to know this is the kind of man who deserves to be honored. Copy him. The replacement principle is very simple. Haman is dead, so the king can choose another demon or the king can choose a good man. In Matthew chapter 12, we have the story that Jesus tells of a man who has a demon. And when the demon is cast out of the man, the man has a choice. He can take on a godly spirit, but since he doesn't, the demon goes around in dry places seeking rest but finding none. Then he takes to him six other demons and says, let's go back to that man. And so the last man's state is worse than his condition at the beginning. The king could have done that. But instead, following the principle of Ephesians 4, put off the old man and put on the new man. Here we have a picture again where the old man is killed and now the new man is exalted to honor. Biblical deliverance produces a change in authority. It is not merely a change in what you profess with your mouth. It is a change of the authority in your heart. Have you ever listened to the Sermon on the Mount and wondered how that can be a sermon given to lost people? Jesus does not talk about the cross. He does not talk about the resurrection. He does not talk about the second coming. 
How can that be the gospel? The answer is very simple. Throughout the sermon, Jesus says, I'm the authority. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard that the law of Moses, but now listen to me. Jesus places himself in a position of absolute authority. You see, salvation can be summarized in this. Jesus is my king. I follow him. I listen to him. I believe him. I love him. I trust him. Anything he says, let the dead bury their dead. Yes, sir. Hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and your own life also. Yes, sir. Forsake everything you have and be my disciple. Yes, sir. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Yes, sir. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Yes, sir. If you have been saved, you have had a massive change of authority as we see here. There's a change of authority. Haman used to be in charge. When he said bow, all of the men bowed. When he said stand, all the men stood except for Mordecai. But now there's a new authority. In true conversion, the new covenant, we see a new authority. It's no longer ourself. It's no longer the Old Testament. It is now the Son of God. So to summarize, point number one. The promise of deliverance places good men in the place of bad men. Does that sound like the new covenant? Let me ask you, if you believe God's promises, are you willing to throw down the old man in your heart and to put the new man who is created in righteousness? I'm done with my first point and I've got four. Sometimes I'm not even done with my introduction by this point in the sermon. Look at the second point right there in verse 15. Uh, I'll give you a hint. The last point's very long. The last one, uh, the last part of verse 15, the city of Shushan rejoiced. Even sinful men want the peace and stability of a wise leader. Unbelievers hate God, but they love the comfort and stability that is brought by a wise and mature leader. Now, when Mordecai is exalted, the people are glad. When the righteous bear rule, the people rejoice. Proverbs chapter 29. But Proverbs 28, when the wicked rise up, men hide themselves. Now we have a good man exalted to honor. Godly men will pull the society with them. That's why we need to pray for our kings and for all, of them, all that are in authority that we might lead a quiet and peaceful life. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Where do the godly men come from? Where will the godly leaders come from? They must start in the homes of men who believe these promises of deliverance. We as Husbands and fathers must make sure that our homes give examples of holding on to the promises. And you women and mothers, lay hold of the promises so that the children will always say, I could never go away from Christ because I saw my mother holding on to the promises. She didn't see them, but by faith. She walked by faith, not by sight. And she laid hold of those promises. That's where the leaders of the godly nation will come from. There is no shortcut to societal change. Our world wants a shortcut. Maybe that's why when Jesus comes back, it will take a thousand years. 
There's no shortcut for the best things in life and in society. Our world is looking for quick fixes. But here it came when a godly man was exalted. The society that is led by good men will prosper. That's point number two. Let's move on to number three. Wow, this is, this is moving too quickly. Verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and in every city wherever the king's commandment and his decree came. The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. There are eight different words used to describe the happiness of the Jews. But this is before they are delivered. They're not delivered. How would you feel, women, if you knew in nine months there's a day when everyone's going to walk the streets with weapons trying to kill us? How would you feel? And what if your husband says, oh, relax. Now we can defend ourselves. They believed it with all their hearts. They were overwhelmed with happiness. They have this unshakable faith in the king's new announcement. Deliverance has not yet come, but the promise has come. And you see, that's the point. That's why this is similar to Romans 5. They laid hold of the promise by faith. They said, the deliverance hasn't come, but I believe it will. The king has spoken, and that law cannot be changed. Doesn't that sound like the new covenant? You might doubt Ahasuerus, but can you doubt Jehovah when he promises all who come to me, I will never cast out. He promises whoever believes in the Son will have life. If we've believed, if we've come, the promise is there. So I ask you now, is there a reason to be optimistic? Yes, because the law about self-defense. Yes, you should be optimistic because who is in power? Mordecai. Yes, you should be optimistic because they've already been helped the whole way through the book of Esther up to chapter 8. So is there reason to be as optimistic? Yes, I just gave you three reasons to be optimistic. But is there reason to be pessimistic? Yes, because men like Haman are still around. They're going to have to kill 75,000 of them in chapter 9. Nine months later, they're going to kill 75,000 people like Haman. That's a lot of people. So is there a reason to be pessimistic? Ladies, how would you feel knowing, well, Haman's dead, but there's thousands upon thousands of men who are willing to riot in the street to kill me and my children. They're there. That's reality. I'm not denying reality. Reason number two. The old law still gives them authority to kill Jews. Not only are the bad men there who might break the law, but bad men are there who are supported by the law to kill you. Number three, there's a reason to be pessimistic. Because they are still outside the land of Israel. They're still in exile. They're still being cursed. Remember Deuteronomy 28. If you don't obey my law, then I will scatter you through all the land. And you will be cursed. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Jews are cursed. They have enemies everywhere and the law allows them to be killed. So if you just follow what I did, I just gave you three reasons to be optimistic 
from the passage. And then I gave you three reasons to be pessimistic from the passage. So what do we do? Are you free to do what you want? All the women can be pessimistic and all the men can be optimistic. All the people who tend to smile, they can be the optimists. And all the people who tend to be realists, they can be the pessimists. Does the Bible give us any answer here? Which one should control the believer? I ask you, which one controls the Jews in verse 16? Look in verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Wherever the commandment went, they had a good day. How was your day? It's a great day. Why? What happened? Oh, we have all of our enemies. And the law still says they can kill us and our children. You call that a good day? The Jews did call that a good day. Which one should control the believer? And the answer is optimism. Christians should be optimistic people, not pessimistic. This passage is a good example. This does not mean that we should overlook the danger. This does not mean that we should pretend the danger is not there. But why should we be optimistic? Because the evil that makes us pessimistic is temporary and the grace is permanent. Number two, why should we be optimistic? Because the scripture constantly presents a holy, born-again kind of optimism. Listen to these verses. I'll just read them quickly. Proverbs 17, 22. A merry heart does good like a medicine. Romans 5, verse 2. In him also we have obtained access and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we glory in tribulations. Do you see that? We glory in tribulations. So Paul's openly admitting, yeah, pessimism, there's a place for it because it's really hard. But we're glorying. That's optimism. We are glorying optimistically in our pessimism trials. Why? Because our trials are bringing about endurance. Well, that's a good thing coming from a bad thing. Crack open a rotten egg and make a delicious omelet. And what else? Endurance is bringing about character, trusted, proven experience. And that character is bringing about, oh my, hope. There's a beautiful rhetorical and theological point that Paul's making. Faith itself brings hope. That was the third of the blessings. And trials also bring hope. Amazingly, the worst, most difficult part that you would think attacks the hope actually produces the hope. And Ray Comfort puts it beautifully in his analogy of the air, airplane and the parachute. If you are told, become a Christian because your life will become better, that's like being told on an airplane, put on a parachute because the parachute will make your flight better. Your experience in the airplane will be so nice if you just wear a parachute. And you're hunched forward and you're hot and everyone laughs at you. Halfway through the flight, you throw the parachute down and say, this stupid parachute, it hasn't made my flight better, it's made my flight worse. But if you're told at any moment you're going to be forced to jump out of this airplane and your only option is, or get the parachute, you'll put the parachute on. And if you're hot, you won't care. And if the 
Stewardess comes down through the aisle and serves coffee and spills it on your lap. Previously, you'd say, this parachute's not making my flight better. This is the worst flight I've ever had. Hot coffee on my lap. I don't want this parachute. But in fact, if the reverse is the case, while you're wearing the parachute, she spills coffee, you're going to actually look forward to the jump. That's all Ray Comfort. That's not me. And that's exactly what Paul the Apostle says in his theological and rhetorical flourish. He says, faith will produce in you hope. Chapter 5, Romans 5, verse 1. Faith will produce in you access. It will give you a ticket to enter God's throne room and speak to him. It will give you not only that, but hope. It will give you troubles. Oh, troubles. That's a tough one. No, actually, even the troubles work out to produce hope in you. Oh, I can't wait till this flight is over. Open the door and let me jump. And that is why Paul the Apostle says, for to me to live is Christ and to die. Well, that would be gain. That would be a Christmas bonus if I died. Oh, nevertheless, to stay in the flesh is better for you. I'm really in a hard place. I really desire to depart and to be with Christ. What does it mean to depart? If you depart, you're dead. Paul says that I really desire to depart. Not just I desire. It's a strong desire. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, I groan after this. If you think sometimes, well, Seth, you're a little too strong. Take it up with Paul, who really wants to die and is groaning to die. All he's saying is, I'm on this airplane and I'm wearing my backpack, my parachute, because I know I'm going to have to jump. And other people are walking around saying, put on the parachute because you'll have a happy life. Not true. These Jews were rejoicing even while their enemies were alive because they knew the command has come and it's sure and it cannot change. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. Does that sound like optimism or pessimism? Ephesians 5 verse 20, in everything give thanks. Colossians 3.17, give thanks in all things. Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, except when you're having a bad day. No, there's no exception clause. Jesus gave an exception clause when he spoke on divorce, but no exception clause when he speaks on optimism. Which one should rule us? Optimism. Why? Because everything that's evil is temporary and everything good is permanent. Is that not a reason to be optimistic? And because the scripture constantly presents a holy born again kind of optimism. Number three, because all things, including the evil things, are ultimately bringing about very great good things. Did you hear that? All things, including the evil things, are ultimately bringing about very great good things. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them that love God. Job has never been sorry for the last 3,000 years that he went through that suffering because that suffering is now paying him back. True faith in the promise of deliverance should raise us over every kind of sadness. I'm not saying don't weep with those who weep. I'm not saying there are hard things. I'm not saying our spirits can be overcome. I'm not saying to be an optimist. Let's, let's be realists. Let's realize the car is going to break down. We don't have the money. Let's be realist. If the husband says, just trust me, be optimistic, wife. And the wife says, 
Yes, but you made five bad decisions and that's why I'm frightened. Husband, don't say back to her, be an optimist. Say, well, you know what, you're right. I did make some bad decisions. I'm sorry, but I changed these three things so those bad decisions won't happen again. And husbands, if you haven't changed anything, don't try to get her to be optimistic if you're still doing the same thing and you want her to change. Just trust me. Well, are you still doing the same thing? And number four, look down at verse seven, uh, 17. This is remarkable. I almost preached the whole sermon just on this phrase. Many of the people of the land became Jews. This is amazing. The Gentiles are converted. Let me show you three observations about this. And here I simply want to show you a result of believing the promises. When the Jews believed the promises, the Gentiles woke up. I wonder what would happen if the church would believe God's promises. I wonder if we laid hold of the promises of God and believed them with all our heart. Notice number one, love for all the nations. The King James Version that I've been reading says, many of the people of the land. If you have the New American Standard, would you please read that phrase? Many among the peoples of the land. Stop. Many among the peoples. If you have the ESV, it says the same thing. The word is a plural. The King James is wrong. It needs to put an S at the end. Many of the peoples, plural. It says that in the ESV, right? Yes. Peoples. Many of the peoples, plural, of the land. It's all the nations. It's all the ethnic groups. Because remember, it's not as if there's one Persian group. The Persians were a group, but they went country by country, conquering people by the sword and saying, now you can give me your taxes. So this Persian empire, over which Ahasuerus is the king, is 127 provinces. Esther chapter 8, verse 9. There's 127 provinces with all their own languages. Esther chapter 8, verse 9. They've got their own languages, their own food choices. They've got their own clothing styles. They've got their own style of government, but now they have to pay taxes to Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus just wants peace, but he knows all the way through my kingdom, there's all these different Gentile nations. And the love of God reaches to every one of those nations. The decree was for the Jews, but the love and mercy were big enough to extend to all the nations, all the groups. And what it says here is remarkable because it says in verse number 17, many from each of the people groups. That is, of the 127 provinces, there's a large group from each. This is amazing. God loved them even in the Old Testament. Even though they had their own religion, they had their own ways, he used the evil act of Haman to increase the Jews' number. The Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, says many of the peoples of the land were circumcised and became Jews. Implying those people were serious and committed. They weren't just speaking with their mouth. They were devoted to this. In Esther 9, verse 27, it says again, many of the peoples of the land were converted. So even in the next chapter, chapter 9, and verse 27, it says the same thing. Now this is a prophecy that was fulfilled. Psalm 126, which is a song they would have sung every year. These Jews would have, 
If they were following the law, they would have sung Psalm 126 that I preached on a few weeks ago in this room. He who goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, will doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing the harvest with him. They're now bringing the harvest. That psalm was written for them. They're singing it. And now they see it. They were weeping for 70 days. It even says so in Esther chapter 4. They wept in Esther 4. 70 days later, the weeping's done. Now they're rejoicing because the people are being converted. Their numbers are increasing. It's an amazing record of conversions that had not been recorded for a thousand years earlier. Exodus 12 verse 38 records, When God destroyed the firstborn of all the people in Egypt, many of the Egyptians converted to Jehovah. Did you notice that? In the Exodus, the plagues, the miracles against the Egyptians caused the clever Egyptians to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, our gods can't do this. We better follow a better God. And if we stay here and follow the true God, we'll probably die. Let's go with them. Exodus 12, 38. But what is even more remarkable is that 50 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah prophesied this exact thing would happen. Listen to this verse. Zechariah 8, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grab the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. That is amazing. 50 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah, while they are in exile, prophesies, there's coming a day when men will come. So many men will come and grab onto the Jews. They're going to be fighting to get a hold of one Jew. Ten men will grab the skirt of one Jew saying, teach us the truth. But this is not the final fulfillment. Zechariah 8.23 is what I just quoted to you. But listen to Zechariah 8 verse 22. The verse right before the verse I quoted. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to treat the favor of Jehovah. Where are these people going to be converted? Jerusalem. Are they in Jerusalem? No. Even to this day, Jerusalem is still barred. Are you reading the, the, the reports of the, of the war? The war is to the southwest. Jerusalem is to the east. But even to this day, the Jews do not have control over Jerusalem. Are people being converted in Jerusalem? Not today. But Zechariah 8.22 says, Someday in Jerusalem, there's going to be a mass revival. Very next verse. They're going to grab, 10 men will grab every Jew and say, teach us. That was partly fulfilled here. Chapter 8, verse 17. But it's not yet completely fulfilled. It hasn't happened in Jerusalem. It's not been a great revival. But it's coming. It is coming. Remember last week, already, but not yet. And I say that to you right now. Brother, look at Elam Baptist Church and say, already we've seen Prisca. But not yet are we seeing all of Elam. All of Elam's coming. I don't know who will be the pastor then, but it's coming. God is full of love and he shows it by his unstoppable interest in saving sinners. I said there were three points I want to make on this. Many of the peoples of the land became Jews. The first one is this, God loves them. He is rich with love. He loves all the groups that are scattered out over the Persian empire a thousand years. 
uh, I'm sorry, 400 years before our Lord came, 2,400 years ago. But notice this, why were they converted? You tell me, look in verse 17. Many of the peoples of the land became Jews for the fear of the Jews fell on them. They're converted because of the fear of God. The fear of the Jews came on them. This fear came from three things. Number one, they could not explain how the Jews were hated and saved. Unlike anyone else and with no other human explanation. Why were the Persians afraid? Because they could not understand how the Jews were both hated irrationally and saved unexplicably. Number two, they may have been afraid of being counted as one of the enemies of the Jews. They may have been afraid thinking in nine months time, if I'm one of the Jews enemies, I might die. Number three, it was the, Jew, the joy of the Jews that produced the fear. They were glad. They were happy. Brothers and sisters, when you carry in your heart and in your soul the joy of the Lord, it will be your strength. And the unsaved world is having bouts of depression. They're turning to alcohol because they want to forget their problems. They turn to drugs or TV or movies or media. They turn to adultery and affairs. They immerse themselves in chasing money because they're miserable. What would it be like if they saw people who have a stroke but still rejoice? Lose a child but praise God? Or what's maybe harder, go to work every day at five in the morning and get back at six at night but still be a good, honest person who loves Jesus and serves the Lord with all your heart. You can't argue with true joy in the face of hardship. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. Look at the difference. If you fear man, you're like Abraham. You'll lie about your wife. Cameron, sit down, please. Abraham lied about his wife because he feared man. Jesus told us not to fear man, Luke 12, verse 4. But fearing God is a synonym for faith in Christ. Because God is the object. Where is your fear directed? To God. Where is our faith directed? To the Son of God. And it's the right action. The fear of God makes you low and it makes God? Is that not what happens? Is that not a function of faith? What does faith do but push me down and push Christ up? The fear of God and faith in Christ are very similar. We don't need money or positions or program. We don't need YouTube channels with 4 million viewers. What we need is the fear of God. And when we have the fear of God, men will be converted. We don't need to put on great programs. We don't need to have flashing lights. We don't need to have drum sets. What we need is the fear of God in our souls. Brothers, I share this with you right now. If we had a church full of men, young men and young women who feared God more than sin and old men who feared God more than the applause of the world, God would be pleased and sinners would be converted. We need the fear of God, not the fear of man. This is the difference between a living and vibrant church. Number three, I said there was three observations What's the third observation from verse 17? Many of the people of the land became Jews. for The fear of the Jews fell on them. It's this one word, 
irony. Haman made a plan to reduce the population of the Jews to what number? Zero. Because of Haman's plan to reduce them to zero, what happens to their population? Many people are added from all over the world. Not only does the, do the Jews go on and increase, but outside groups join them. And even those who don't join them now pity them. They now have political power, which Haman tried to destroy. They now have an increased population, which Haman tried to produce as zero. They now are joined from other ethnic and cultural groups, which Haman had tried to destroy. Evil men dig pits for the righteous, and then they fall into their own pits. I started searching the Bible, and I found a dozen verses that say that. Let me just read these to you. Job 4, verse 8. Job, time of Abraham. About 2,000 years before Jesus. Job 4, verse 8. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest the trouble that they've sown. Psalm 7, David, he has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will fall on his own head. His violence will descend on his own pate. Psalm 915, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they have dug for themselves. The net which they hid for other men, their own foot has been caught in it. Psalm 35, for without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come on them unawares. Let the net which they hid catch themselves. Into that very destruction, let him fall. My soul will rejoice in the Lord. Same thing, Psalm 57. Same thing, Psalm 141. Same thing, Proverbs 26, 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones will be hurt by those stones. He who splits logs will be endangered by the logs. David cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's sword. Daniel's enemies were crushed by the lions in the pit that was supposed to eat Daniel. They filled the pit with lions. How do you even do that? It's a lot of work just to get a pit. Then it's a lot of work to get the lions there. I mean, these guys are working hard. They're working overtime trying to find an inventive way to kill an 80-year-old man. And they and their wives and their kids are crushed before they even hit the ground. That's called irony. But the greatest irony is this. Satan says, I despise God so much, I'll steal his prime creation, the man and the woman. And God says, oh, you won't steal anything because from them and their seed, I'll make a new man with my son. Oh, you send your son? You're so foolish as to give him a body? I'll crush that one. And God says, crush him? Oh, no, you don't understand. Whatever you're doing, Satan, my foot is on top of you crushing my son and you together at the same time so as to bring out eternal glory for my own namesake. The whole story of the Bible is the story of irony. Satan says, I've got a plan. And God says, it's actually my plan. <laughs> Satan says, I'll do something bad. And God says, I'll make your bad good. Is there not a reason to believe the Bible? The Quran can't do this. Buddhism can't do this. African traditional religion can't do this. Atheism, they have nothing to offer. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's it? 
get drunk because I'm about to die? Really, you're going to offer that as a, as a world and life view? It's, it's childish. It's nothing. But this, this satisfies the soul. There is a great demon. He's called Haman in this story. But the glory is this great demon can be overthrown and conquered. And you have to lay hold of that by faith. That's the point of this passage. And that's the point of the sermon. There's very many bad things happening, but there's some great promises. I want you tonight to put all of your faith and all of your confidence in those promises so that you will go out and live happy, joyful, optimistic lives in the face of death coming in nine months. Oh, dear God, give us faith. We don't have it. We are weak. We are distracted and discouraged. Satan is is a, a lion seeking whom he may devour. We are tempted and we fall. Our flesh is so strong. The world is so bright. Save us, Father. Oh, Holy Spirit, give us strength. Grant that we would rejoice like the Jews, that we would be Christian optimists. Help us to lay hold of the promises by faith and grant that Jesus would come back and we would see that revival, the final fulfillment of Zechariah 8.23, partly fulfilled in Esther 8.17 and finally fulfilled when the rider on the white horse says, this world is mine and I will rule it for my own and I will rule them with a rod of iron and all the nations will bow down. Oh, let that happen tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.